So this week, we're going to talk about the mission of God. And finally, we're going to get into what's usually taken to be the starting point of missions when we think about missions, which is the mission of God in the church, or the mission of God and the people of God. So the past two weeks really have been foundational for us to get here. And we've talked about how the mission of God starts first and foremost uh, flowing out of who God is. So it starts with God's nature as a missionary God, and then it unfolds throughout history in his unified plan of redemption from Old Testament to New Testament. So it's one continuous story of his mission uh, from creation to new creation. And just to review These two concepts we talked about, the centripetal and centrifugal, so the roller coaster, the push and the pull. So in the Old Testament, largely we see God's mission following this centripetal pattern, so it's drawing in, um, and God is accomplishing his mission. So think of uh, Israel as like a magnet that's drawing the nations toward Israel. And then God is going to work his plan of redemption through that particular people. Uh, And then God's mission narrows down to the singular point in the life of Christ. Uh, In Jesus' incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. So last week we talked about how Christ fulfills all the Old Testament covenants. Uh, Everything was pointing forward to him and finds its fulfillment in him. And then today, we'll look at that outward explosion, so the centrifugal movement of God's mission after the life of Jesus um, when he pours out the Holy Spirit on the church, uh, making it possible for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation to get in on God's covenant promises. And then the last, uh, another thing we talked about last week was Trinitarian mission. So mission starts with God and who God is in himself. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so the Trinitarian mission refers to uh, the mission of Jesus coming in the flesh and then the mission of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the, uh, there's your Trinity diagram uh, that can You can get lost staring at that. But the two uh, terms we learned was ad intra and ad extra. So ad intra is who God is in himself, um, God's nature. He's the self-sustaining God. Um, And then ad extra is God's works uh, in, in relation to the world. So sometimes that's referred to the economic trinity. Um, So, God's mission of the Son uh, occurs in time with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The mission of the Holy Spirit happens in time through the promised Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son and would be poured out on all flesh at Pentecost. And the mission of the Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus. So um, John... Chapter 14 through 16 is known as the Upper Room Discourse, and this is Jesus' talk with his disciples before his death. It's his final major passage of teaching. And there, Jesus promises the future coming of the Holy Spirit. 
it's called the paraclete, the helper. Um, so just a few verses there. Uh, John 14, he says, The counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. And then he says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, will testify about me. And then in chapter 16, he says, I am telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So when we take all of those verses together, uh, historically, we would say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So explicitly, Jesus says, the Father uh, will send the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. But then he also says, I will send him to you. Um, so that's known as the double procession of the Holy Spirit. And this whole idea led to uh, a split in the church called the Filioque Controversy. And this is, this is just, you don't need to remember all of this. It's uh, kind of trivial. But the Filioque Controversy is um, a Latin word for and the son. So there's a Nicene Creed. Basically, the bottom line is the church in the West added, he proceeds from the father and the son, the church in the East wanted to say, no, he only proceeds from the Father. My point in bringing this up is to say, uh, as those passages demonstrate, the biblical evidence, I think, suggests he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, it's biblical to think of that. Um, and so Jesus promises the Spirit, and then the Spirit would... We see the mission of the Spirit unfold in time on the day of Pentecost. So that's Acts chapter 2. And we'll talk about more of that later. But Acts chapter 2 is significant for the mission of the church because that's where the Spirit is poured out on all flesh for ongoing power, ongoing presence of God to accomplish his mission. So... The, the point of all of this is to think about the mission of the church is dependent on the mission of the Spirit. So the mission of God in the church is part of God's one mission, the one mission of the triune God. So uh, before we get into uh, particulars about uh, how the mission of God unfolds in the New Testament, let's think about the mission the missional nature of the church broadly. So what is the church? How do we think about it? Of course, we have buildings and stuff, but the Bible talks about the church being the people of God. Um, here's a definition by Greg Allison. He says, the church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. So what he means is the church is made up of regenerate believers, confessing believers, 
And then membership in the church is demonstrated through baptism. That's your public declaration of faith, and that's also your formal, you're marking your formal entrance into the life of the church. And Allison will say that the church has a missional identity. Um, He says the missional church is identified by and engages in the missio dei, so the mission of God. And I shared this quote last week. Uh, J.D. Payne expresses the similar idea. He says, mission is God's idea. Mission begins with God, is sustained by God, and culminates with God. Mission is not an activity developed by the church. Rather, the church participates in God's mission. So what this means for us is missions is not a program of the church. Missions isn't something the church has independently of God. Mission totally belongs to God. It's God's idea flowing from his nature. God creates the church through his mission, and then the church becomes enfolded into God's mission, but the church doesn't create the mission out of nothing. So the church is actually engrafted into God's mission. And so what the church does flows out of what the church is. So the church does missions because it is missional, because it's part of what God is doing in the world. So uh, historically, if you want to use the language of the creeds, um, they'll talk about the nature of the church this way. Um, And the Nicene Creed will say there are four marks to the church, uh, unity, holiness, Catholicity, Um, which doesn't mean Catholic, like the Roman Catholic Church. It just means universal, global church. And then apostolicity. So the church is apostolic. And that means um, its its teaching is in accordance with the scriptures as handed down from the apostles. So the church is characterized by unity, unity of sound doctrine, as it accords with scriptures. So scripture will talk about the church being one body, all under the authority of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Um, And of course, we might laugh at the idea of unity in the church with all the different denominations, but on essential matters, uh, especially things like expressed in the creeds, those are things that all Christians have unity on. And the creed is not authoritative over us, um, but it's a concise summary statement of what Scripture teaches. And then holiness. So the church is characterized by holiness. And again, we might be tempted to laugh at that. Another day, another fallen pastor. Um, But holiness... Here is the idea that the church is set apart for God and his purposes. So the church is the the set-apart body through which Christ is going to accomplish his work until he comes again. And then the church is Catholic. I'm not getting weird here. (laughs) Uh, But again, as I said, not Roman Catholic. 
uh, but in the universal sense. So the church is universal, global, uh, at all times, all places. Uh, so you might have heard the distinction of like lowercase c church and capital C church. Uh, that's a convention we use to talk about the distinction. So River is a lowercase c church. Um, it's a local church, but it's a part of the big church, the universal church. And so the universal church is manifested in little local churches like this. So how do you become a part of the universal church? Well, you do it in and through your local church. Uh, there's no such thing as a, a dismembered body part, <laughs> to use Paul's metaphor there. Uh, and then the last piece there, the church is apostolic. So again, the church is founded on the teaching of the apostles. Um, and so we understand it's apostolic if it's in accordance with the teaching as handed down through scripture. So to tie all of this together with the idea of mission, the church is the regenerate people of God, people who have been born again. And as such, the church is missional. It's an identity marker of the church. So here's, uh, I know this is a PowerPoint sin to just put a bunch of text up there. Um, but here's a lengthy quote from Greg Allison, again, on the missional identity of the church. But I think it's worth quoting in full because I think, really, this paragraph summarizes the past two weeks, what we've been trying to communicate. So here's what he says. He says, the church is missional. That is, the body of divinely called and sent ministers proclaiming the gospel and advancing the kingdom of God. There is one mission of the triune God, and it's given to the church as its witness empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Father commissions the Son with the mission of becoming incarnate, living a holy life, dying, resurrecting, and ascending to accomplish salvation for sinful human beings. In turn, the Son commissions his disciples with the same mission, with this modification. The church is sent not to accomplish salvation, but to announce the salvation that was accomplished by the Son and how to appropriate it. The mission is all of a piece. It's not two missions, but one, from the Father to the Son and from the Son to the church. So to sum up what he's getting at there, there is one mission of the triune God, and then the mission of the spirit-filled church is a continuation of that mission. So God sent his son Jesus. Jesus commissioned us, pouring out the Holy Spirit. That would be a continuation of that mission. Um, and then our mission, as he says, is not to accomplish salvation, but to announce the salvation that has been accomplished uh, through Christ. So... That's the big picture idea of the missional nature of the church. So now what I want to do is just walk through some New Testament texts um, and do a biblical theology of the church's mission as it unfolds through the New Testament. So a starting point 
Um, let me see where I'm at. A starting point for thinking about the mission of the church is with Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to his disciples. So John chapter 20 is sometimes known as the commissioning scene. So the disciples are, they're on COVID lockdown. They're, after his resurrection, they're behind locked doors and they're fearful and they're downcast, they're fragile, they're hiding for fear of the Jews. And then Jesus in his physical resurrected body passes through the doors and he stands in their midst. Uh, And he tells them, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. That's the commission. And so there you get the centrifugal movement. The outward movement begins there. He says, as I've been sent, I'm sending you. Um, Last week we talked about this little diagram of concentric circles. So Jesus will later say, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So that's the outward movement. And the disciples are then drawn into God's mission in a new way. And they're going to be the extension of God's mission and continued action in the world. And the key here in John 20 is that that's going to be accomplished and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So verse 22, or right before verse 22, he says, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And then verse 22, it says, when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is going to be a crucial aspect of continuing that mission. And some scholars debate whether this means uh, there there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit here in John chapter 20, and then another outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. I don't think that's the case. I take this, I follow, um, there's a guy named Andreas Kostenberger, and here's what he says about this verse. He says, the the reference to Jesus' breathing on his disciples while saying, receive the Holy Spirit, probably represents a symbolic promise of the soon-to-be-given gift of the Spirit, not its actual impartation, which occurs soon thereafter at Pentecost. So Jesus saying, receive the Holy Spirit is essentially a promise that you're about to receive the Holy Spirit um, on the day of Pentecost. We see the theme of fulfillment here. Uh, So John chapter 20, with that verb, uh, Jesus breathed on them. In the Greek Old Testament, uh, it's the same verb used when it talks about Jesus breathing life into Adam. So thematically, you have this idea of the initial creative action of God breathing life, uh, but then you have this regenerative power of the Holy Spirit creating new life. So this theme of continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from creation to new creation. So Jesus breathes on them, and they will now be identified as the new people of God 
who will continue his mission through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, One of the purposes of the Holy Spirit, of receiving the Holy Spirit, uh, is to further the mission of God through the ministry of reconciliation, uh, forgiveness. So the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins to those who believe in Jesus. So that's the commissioning scene. Now let's move to the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28. So I'll read here starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I was reading that uh, prepping for this class, and I was struck by uh, the fact that some of the, some of the disciples doubted. Some worshipped and some doubted. I think that's interesting. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, man, this whole experience for them would have been disorienting and surreal. They had certain expectations of what the Messiah was going to be. Uh, seemingly, those expectations were shattered. Uh, and then you have the resurrection. And the, their mind is like not knowing how to process all this info. <laughs> And they're already on lockdown in fear of the Jews, because if the resurrection is true, as it is, they know now they're going to potentially suffer for it. They're going to be enemies of the Jewish religious leaders. They're guilty by association uh, because of the scandal of a crucified Messiah. Uh, Jesus would have been seen uh, potentially as a seditious traitor an enemy of the state who led a failed insurrection. Um, So the gospel, or the Great Commission here, is triumphant. Uh, The resurrection is triumphant. But some of the disciples here had their doubts, and they were fearful. And I think in response to that, not only that, but in response to that, Jesus responds by assuring them of the authority that he's giving to them. So some worshiped, and for those who doubted, Jesus says, look, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go in that authority. Uh, I think it was a way to instill courage into them. And... So that authority is foundational to the going. So we go in God's authority, in his power, in his name. It's not a self-granted authority. And uh, we can hear echoes of Jesus' words earlier in the gospel. Don't fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So don't fear. You're going in my power, in my authority. And then 
the, the famous go of this passage is not like a pistol at a track meet, go, <laughs> but it's really as you go or as you're walking around, as you're living your life, as you go out and about to Fuzzy's Tacos, <laughs> make disciples, make students of Jesus. And then he says, um, make disciples of all nations. And the Greek word is ethne. Make disciples of all the ethne. So that's where we get our word ethnicity. So he's talking about ethnic groups, people groups, not necessarily nation states like the United States. Most likely he's talking about ethnicities. So God's people, the church, are going to be this multi-ethnic multitude. The gospel of Jesus knows no racial barriers. And, of course, there have been evil distortions of the Bible uh, to reinforce racist ideology. Uh, But really, that's only half the story because it's also because of the understanding of the gospel that... uh, the understanding that the gospel is for of all people um, that led many people to get behind the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, and the rest. So the, you know, the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, were largely successful because of their religious foundation. And, and the foundation of both of those movements is the idea of human dignity based on the image of God. Um, I don't want to get too controversial, but there's a clear difference between the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement and the Black Lives, La- the ba- Black Lives Matter movement today. Um, and the difference is that religious foundation. It's absent in the BLM movement. But Jesus says here, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation... So that's the vision that's going to find its fulfillment in heaven where the multi-ethnic multitude gathers around the throne. So, of course, um, Revelation chapter 7, John's vision of the throne, a great multitude that no one could number, people of every tribe, all tongues and languages standing before the throne. So as we go, we are to make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then here's the, the what of the Great Commission. What is it teaching them to obey all that I've commanded? That's what the making disciples is. So discipleship is at the heart of the Great Commission. Uh, Dallas Willard's famous book called The Great Omission is about discipleship and the Great Commission. And he says the great omission is we've forgotten that discipleship is at the heart of the Great Commission. So discipleship is for the world. And then he alludes to the promise of the Holy Spirit. So the Great Commission concludes with Jesus' promise of his continued presence and power for ministry. He says, I will be with you always. He is with us, and this will culminate through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
that he's about to pour out on the day of Pentecost. So if we jump to the book of Acts, this is the story of the early church and the people of God. And it's not a a new story created out of nothing, uh, but there's one God and one story. And Luke and Acts are actually a two-volume book. It's a two-volume work. Luke is about the life and mission of Jesus, and then Acts is the sequel. It's the uh, continuous development of that story. So Luke ends with the ascension of Jesus. Acts also begins with the ascension of Jesus, but it's told from two different viewpoints. And the ascension of Jesus, Jesus going back into heaven, uh, is about his enthronement. So Jesus is enthroned now as the promised king. So he's been vindicated as the son of God through his triumph over death and the resurrection. And so now, seated at the right hand of the Father, he is exalted as holding all authority. And so Acts picks up with the ascension of Jesus. And this is the passage I alluded to earlier. Um, He tells them, to stay in Jerusalem and await the promised Holy Spirit. And again, uh, this map is small, but Jerusalem's here, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, the ends of the known earth. And so it's this outward movement that begins to expand. So in the past... um, Here's here's what's different about the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and why it's significant. So in the past, in the Old Testament, uh, the Spirit would rush upon people to empower them, but it was always temporarily. Uh, It was for a specific purpose. So there was no sense in the Old Testament of a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So as you read the Old Testament, you'll see uh, the Spirit of God rushed upon Uh, David, or something like that. So the Spirit will come upon someone, it'll rush upon someone, but it's God's empowerment, it's temporary for a specific purpose. Uh, Usually it's showing God's favor on a particular individual for some task. So David is anointed as king, the Spirit rushes upon him for that specific task. Or we might think of uh, King Saul. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, it says the spirit rushed upon him and he prophesied. And then after Saul's sin in 1 Samuel 16, it says the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And so following Saul's sin, the spirit or the Lord removes his favor and empowerment for Saul in that role. He's no longer fit for office. So the Lord removes the spirit for empowerment there. Uh, So with that in mind, when we read Psalm 51, which is David's cry after his sin of adultery, he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So take not your Holy Spirit from me like you did Saul. And does God? No, no. Because God entered into this covenant with David, 
and God said he would be faithful to that covenant even where David failed. However, God doesn't allow David to build the temple. God forgave David of his sin, but David still suffered lifelong consequences, uh, and his, his life never really recovered from that event. Um, so as we think about the activity of the Holy Spirit, this is where covenants is important. So, you know, how do we think about the Spirit in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? Well, what covenant are we under in the timeline when this is going on? Um, so today we're under the New Covenant, and we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I don't believe somebody can lose their salvation. So, you know, when we read Psalm 51 and we say, take not your Holy Spirit from me, um, you know, it's not suggesting that if I sin, God is going to remove his Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, they were under a different covenant, so there's a different context going on there. The Spirit was operating differently. Um, So that's why the the Spirit being poured out on all flesh at Pentecost is so significant. The Spirit now is going to be poured out on all humanity uh, for those who believe, and this is understood as this permanent indwelling, the promise of the new covenant. So you can turn to Acts chapter 2, and we'll jump into talking about Pentecost. So Pentecost, what is it, and why is it significant? So Pentecost marks the 50 days after Passover. It marks the giving of the law to Moses at Sinai. So it's a Jewish festival, um, and it marks the, the promise of the new covenant coming to fulfillment. So Paul would say, we're no longer under the law as a covenant. We're now under the Spirit. And so Pentecost marks the new outpouring and a new moment in the mission of God. And so this is tied to the fact that God's kingdom has come. So in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and his ascension, Jesus is now exalted as the promised Davidic king. And he will pour out his spirit to mark the fulfillment of the new covenant age in which he'll write his law on our hearts through the Spirit. And so, to connect uh, the, the commission in John, the Great Commission to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is the, the connection there. Um, it's all about God's promise of his power and authority coming through the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is my view. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time today 
into business with tongues, but uh, my view is I take this to mean different human languages. And to me, that makes the most sense uh, as we read the Bible in the context here, making sense of how this fits into the larger biblical narrative. Um, So what are the major events that are connected to Acts 2 in the Old Testament? We have the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And so Acts 2 is this reversal of the Tower of Babel. So there God confuses the people's languages so they can't understand each other and they're scattered over the face of the earth. But here you have people from all the various nations gathered into one place and they're all coming and they all understand each other uh, in their own language. So it's this reversal of that Babel incident. And then also Moses receives the law at Sinai. Exodus chapter 20, now we're in the age of the Spirit. We're no longer under the law. We're under the power of the Spirit. And then Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2 was this prophecy that the new covenant would come with the outpouring of God's Spirit. And so, as you look at Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he wants to demonstrate how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's come before. And that's something to take note of as you read the book of Acts, uh, is this um, theme of fulfillment. You can find this pattern in Peter's sermons, his speeches. Think of Stephen's speech, Acts chapter 7. You have this theme of fulfillment of God's activity in the Old Testament all coming to fruition in what God's doing through the Spirit. So they'll say, Scripture had to be fulfilled, or as it is written, um, they proclaim that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. Uh, Here in Acts 2, Peter says that Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it's all, it's all tied to that mission. And then Peter's sermon concludes with this evangelistic gospel invitation. He says, repent and be baptized, for the promise of forgiveness of salvation belongs to all people. So Pentecost is just the beginning of what will continue to work itself out through the whole book of Acts uh, all the way to the present day here uh, on a Sunday afternoon in River Community Church in a cafe. (laughs) This is the continued working of the Holy Spirit from what he began at Pentecost. Uh, Another major turning point in Acts is Acts chapter 13, uh, what happens in Antioch. So here, Paul gives a major uh, sermon demonstrating that the gospel included the Gentile mission. So they wanted to reach people of other nations. And so it's important to consider Paul's life before this. And I'm not going to rehearse that story. It's likely familiar to all of us, but uh, Paul was this persecutor of the church Uh, had this encounter with Jesus on his road to Damascus 
Acts chapter 9. Um, and as a side note, there's a great article on the Gospel Coalition called No, Saul the Persecutor Did Not Become Paul the Apostle. Uh, it's a good article um, if you're interested. So the argument there goes uh, that there's biblical precedent for God changing people's names. So God does that with Abraham in the Old Testament. It was Abram, then it became Abraham. So it was exalted father, and then he changed his name to father of multitudes. But uh, what he argues in that article is there's really no evidence that that's what happens in Acts. It's not God changing Paul's name. What it is, is it's a textual uh, technique that Luke is using to draw your attention to Paul's mission to the Gentile peoples. So uh, Saul was the Hebrew name of Paul, and it was common since Greek was the trade language to have a Greek name or something like that. So Paul is simply the Greek version of his Hebrew name. And so what Luke is doing as he's writing this is he's saying, uh, this is a significant shift in Paul's mission to the Gentiles. So now when I'm talking about Paul, I'm going to use his Greek name because that helps us understand uh, his mission to the Gentile peoples. So what happens at Antioch? Uh, what's Paul's ser sermon about? Well, he gives a sermon about the mission of God. And he preaches Christ from the Old Testament. So uh, I'll just fly through this passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing in, in fullness, but um, I'll read parts of it. So he begins, uh, Acts chapter 13, this starts around verse 16. And he says, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Um, so, I mean, there you have implied God's covenant with Noah, Abraham, uh, the God of our fathers. And then during their stay in the land of Egypt with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. That's God's covenant with Moses at Sinai. So he goes through the Old Testament story. <clears throat> he talks about the period of Judges. Uh, verse 21, he, he tells the story of them asking for a king. God gives them Saul. Um, he removes Saul, raises up David. Uh, verse 23, Paul's talking about the Davidic covenant. So he says, of this man's offspring... God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So Paul is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of uh, the Davidic covenant. Um, and then he, he brings the connection to the present day. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, to those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. Um, so this, has, uh, this message has come to us, the people of Israel, 
And then he says, the people of Israel rejected him. They didn't understand him. Um, But we can become a part of the offspring of Abraham by faith. We can become um, beneficiaries of the covenant by faith. And then um, verse 32 and 33, he says, And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us. And then he quotes a couple passages through the Psalms, um, interpreting those to really be speaking about Jesus and the resurrection. Um, And then the very end, um, he says, this promise is for you. Verse 38, uh, let it be known to you that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. So Paul's uh, sermon is this sermon about the mission of God in the Old Testament and how Christ fulfills all of those covenants. So there's a direct line of continuity um, now extended to the missional nature of the church. So uh, three last considerations to think about uh, the church, Uh, three aspects of the missional nature of the church. Uh, The first is the church is expansive. The church is culturally sensitive, or sorry, contextually sensitive. And... um, And then third, the church is universal or Catholic. So first, the church is expansive. Uh, That's the idea we've been talking about all afternoon. Uh, The centrifugal nature of the church manifested through the book of Acts. So the day of Pentecost, there were approximately 3,000 saved. And so the church, the early church spreads with this breathtaking momentum, uh, despite all the church's early opposition and persecution. uh, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So early on, God's abundant blessing is on the church. And then if you go to the end of Acts, it's left unfinished. So it, it, it it ends with Paul preaching the gospel uh, to those who are around him. Um, And that's designed to draw our attention to the fact that as Theophilus is writing or reading this book, this two-volume book that Luke wrote him, Luke is trying to tell him, hey, Theophilus, you're a continuation of, of what God has been doing in and through Jesus in and through Paul and the church. Uh, So this continues for us today. Uh, The second thing there, the the church is contextually sensitive. So in missions, uh, we talk about contextualization. Um, Acts gives us different examples of how the gospel is contextualized in different communities. How does the gospel make sense depending on where you are? How do these people understand it um, if they're from a different culture than you? 
so contextualization doesn't mean that the content of the gospel changes. It's the presentation of the gospel that changes, uh, being mindful of the audience. So you want your audience to understand what you're communicating. So examples of this in the book of Acts, think of um, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. It's all Jewish people. So his sermon is full of the Old Testament. I mean, in part, because God is showing us that it's all one mission. But also, I think it's He's aware of his audience. He knows this is primarily Jews, so I'm going to use the scriptures that they know and build a bridge to Jesus to show them how this makes sense. Um, Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are out, and there are some Greek peasants, some Greek farmers that um, basically are falling before them saying that they're like gods. Um, And he says, no, we're just like you. We're men. We're just men. Uh, But he says, but let me tell you about the living God. And there's no Old Testament narrative. There's no lengthy Old Testament narrative, but he just tells them about the living God, the true creator of heaven and earth. So it's a contextualized message. Um, Or the famous scene with Acts chapter 17, Paul at the Areopagus is this uh, public space where uh, philosophy and people would have a, you know, talking heads would come and share ideas, uh, Greek philosophers. So Paul visits the Greek philosophers, uh, Acts chapter 17, and what does he do? Well, he uses their poetry to bring them to the gospel. So he quotes from um, the best of them, and he uses that as a launching point to demonstrate the fullness of the truth that's found in Scripture. So, again, it's about bridge building. That's what contextualization is about. Um, And that's a challenge for us, but it happens every day around the globe. How do we bring the gospel to the surrounding culture without changing the content of the gospel message? But we need to speak in a way that the gospel makes sense to people. Um, And honestly, this would be a great question next week to ask and talk through um, the Jeremets with. um, Asking them, you know, how how have you approached contextualization in, in your context working with Muslim peoples um, in a culture that's very different than yours. Uh, A a great movie is sort of controversial, but I think it's a a good movie that depicts the problem of contextualization is uh, Silence by Martin Scorsese. So it's a movie about these Jesuit um, Catholic missionaries in the 1700s in Japan. And uh, the Japanese authority in one scene says something like, uh, Japan is a swamp for Christianity. Christianity is not going to take root uh, in Japan. It can't. It can't uh, take root here. And um, for me, that 
that prompts me to think about contextualization. So I think, well, maybe um, you know, the culture of Catholicism is not gonna take root in Japanese culture, but that's not true that the gospel is not gonna uh, take root in Japan, but in order to do that, you're gonna have to contextualize the message. Um, you're gonna have to understand their culture and how do we communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense to them? And then the last uh, piece there is the church is potentially universal. That's the vision, at least. Um, the goal for the church is that it would extend broadly throughout the whole world, and it's designed to be Catholic. Uh, it's designed to spread globally. And now... Um, missiologists, people that study missions, uh, they'll talk about how the church is spreading rapidly in what's called the global south, which is pretty much any non-Western country so uh, or area. Uh, Africa, South America, Asia, that's considered the global south. So the church is, is growing in these regions, outpacing Western nations, Western countries are moving towards secularization, um, but certain places are becoming more religious. Uh, Christianity is spreading. So what does that mean for the future? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Scholars talk about just um, how that'll change theology as these theologians from these regions start producing more works on theology. So the church is going to continue to grow um, and spread throughout the globe. Uh, so that's really it for the main portion of the lecture. Then I just have these um, implications for all of this. Uh, the first one, again, uh, God has one unified plan of redemption. And so we have to connect uh, the Great Commission to the Old Testament. That's the old slide, isn't it? That's from last week. Forgot to change that one. Well, <laughs> so the first point, I'll just go black here. Black that screen out. Uh, connect the Great Commission to the Old Testament, but it's the same idea. God is one unified plan of redemption. Um, missions doesn't start in Matthew 28. Mission starts when God says, let there be light. Um, missions is not a program. Missions is an identity. So that... Um, creates a paradigm shift for how we think about ourselves as a part of the church. We are a sent people. Um, so we gather to worship, and then we scatter throughout Wichita um, on mission. We are sent. Um, another implication of this, it, um, as we think about it, is missions is not sociology. Missions is not merely uh, providing social needs for people. Missions is about proclamation of the gospel. Um, 
And that can include both um, material, holistic needs. How do we care for the whole person? Um, but there has to be gospel proclamation uh, in missions. Uh, and I read a book last semester, really interesting. Um, I, I don't recommend it, but uh, it's, it's called Protestants Abroad. I don't agree with the guy's conclusions, but I liked the book for other reasons, and here's the reason I liked it. He uh, wrote a book about uh, Protestant missions work in the 20th century, and uh, basically what he demonstrates is... Um, these Protestant missionaries went out, and then missions became just about social goods, social amelioration, and then those denominations uh, plummeted in terms of their numbers and who was uh, going to their churches. Um, those missions organizations died, and even he, you know, he's writing Princeton University Press. And he'll talk about how um, today it's, it's Bible-believing, um, gospel-proclaiming missions organ organizations uh, that have survived. So the people left those denominations, went to Bible-believing, gospel-proclamation denominations, and those are the missions organizations that have survived and thrived um, so anyway, all that to say, missions is not just about social goods, even though that's important. There has to be proclamation. Um, and then the, the last implication is just a question to think about, um, but it's how am I involved in mission? How am I involved in the mission of God as I await Christ's return? So uh, Faithfulness. <laughs> You know, that's a great, a great thing to consider. <laughs> so, um, so that's all I have for you. Um, I can stick around for any questions, and we can talk through that.